All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. My name is Dean. I will be your conversational tour guide for the evening. Tonight, as promised, we have a uh, wonderful show for you, especially here in Black History Month. We have uh, retired Detroit Police Chief James Craig here, and he's going to talk a little bit about his journey through law enforcement. And we're going to talk, we're going to bring that all the way up to current events to where we are now. Just to uh, a couple things up front, if you notice my voice is not like it usually is, I am suffering from a bit of COVID, uh, but we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to fight our way through this. Uh, it was just too important of a show for, uh, for me to try to postpone and move on from. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and bring up Chief James Craig. Hey, Chief, how are you doing? How, how are you, sir? Very good. Um, glad to be on your show this evening. I look forward to it. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, you know, I, I've been, you know, obviously as a as a as a younger up and coming black law enforcement executive, I, I I've been looking at, at at your career and and how remarkable it is, and and using that to kind of motivate me to to do better and to do more. So, thank you for for thank you. blazing the trail for us. Oh, thank you for that. So, if you could, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and just tell us a little bit about your journey? Well, it's been a great journey, Dean. Um, I'm fortunate. I started in law enforcement in, I hate to say it, 1977, uh, 19 years old, just a few short years after graduation from high school. And it wasn't my plan to go into policing. In fact, uh, it was my idea that I was going to become an automotive engineer. And so as things would have it, uh, 19 years old, my dad probably influenced me, and I didn't know it at the time, but he was a military police officer and a reserve officer for the Detroit Police Department. So I went in, applied, and it was a time when Detroit, the mayor, the first African-American mayor of the city of Detroit, wanted to have the police department better reflect uh, the community. So he hired uh, a lot of women and a lot of African-Americans. In fact, Detroit was a national leader in diversifying major city police departments at that time. He did that. Uh, so my class, which was unique of any modern of that time, major city chief, I mean, uh, city, was that my class was 98% African-American. And so when I graduated, and I know you played a clip and some of your viewers may have saw the clip leading up to this interview. Um, once I graduated from the academy, um, and I had a chance to work what we call scout cars here in Detroit, uh, my partner, who was white, probably a 25-year veteran, he looked at me and he just said, I don't want you here. In fact, um, you're not going to drive. Don't talk to me. Don't touch the radio. Uh, and that's the way it was for that day. So I remember calling my dad at the end of, end of shift. And I said, hey, this is crazy. I don't think this is what I want to do. I should have followed my first mind and went on it and finished my engineering degree. But uh, he said, you know, son, I understand. Uh, he had applied as a Detroit police officer after serving in the U.S. Army as a military police officer and he was disqualified. I was disqualified initially. They said I didn't weigh enough. But I went and did what I needed to do to gain a few pounds. And so... Did you say uh, you didn't weigh enough? 
I did not weigh enough. <laughs> you know, even then, we're talking about the 70s. Even though when my dad applied, it was a very different era. Still, you know, in the 70s, it was very different. In Detroit, by example, uh, we had the 1967 riots. I was 11 years old. Ten years later, I'm in the police academy. And it was really focused on race relations. Uh, but my dad said, you know, many people fought so that you could be where you're at. But if you want to change an institution, you need to be part of the institution. And those words stayed with me for the rest of my professional career. And so I got past the, the DQ of not weighing enough. Uh, and then my first interaction with that officer, uh, and I will tell you, uh, best decision I could have ever made. Uh, you know, I say to many who ask me about what I think about my lengthy career, phenomenal. Uh, I miss it to this day. Uh, I'm a public servant. I love serving people. I love serving the men and women I've had the, the good fortune uh, that, well, let me just digress for a moment because after two and a half years, uh, the mayor of Detroit laid off 1,500 police officers. I did say 1,500. In Back then, Detroit was probably the fifth largest city in America. We had a police department of about 6,500 to 7,000. And so he laid off 1,500 police officers. And so I had to make a decision. Uh, do I continue in the profession or what? And so I wanted to stay in the profession. And so it's, I'm grateful that I chose to move to L.A., L.A. was hiring police officers, and so I was able to get through the uh, L.A. Police Academy and serve for 28 years, rose through the rank. It's a whole lot I want to fill in during my time in L.A., and maybe it, we'll get to that as the segment goes forward. But I had set a goal early in my policing career, even during a time when I was a young police officer, that I wanted to be a police chief. And so when I went to L.A., I never lost sight of that goal, but I even took it to the point that I wanted to be a police chief by the time I was 51. So LA had me off my goal a little bit. So I said, you know, and, and I know you're from Massachusetts, you're like this. So I made a conscious decision. At this time I was a, a captain three. I was running one of Los Angeles 24 stations in South LA, those who are familiar with California. And so I started pursuing opportunities for chief's vacancies as a captain. One notable pursuit was when I pursued Boston, Massachusetts. At, at Boston, the Boston police or one of the- Boston police. Okay. And at the time, uh, my chief was Bill Bratton, who, as you know, came up through Boston and, and New York and then later became the LA chief. And so I applied for Boston and it came down to myself and one other candidate. And it was an interesting process. You might remember Mayor Menino. Of course, yeah. They flew me into DC, not Boston. 
uh, they didn't want it to get out uh, that I was in the process. And so, as you know, Boston had never had an African-American chief. I'm not saying that was the reason, but I ended up uh, flying into D.C. I met with Mayor Menino, and I think it was the owner of the Boston Red Sox. I was excited about the interview. I felt good about the interview. And I got the sense that the mayor felt good about me as a candidate. However, uh, there was a candidate. The other candidate was the chief of a smaller city in Massachusetts. Uh, he was ultimately selected as Boston's chief or commissioner. I'm not sure what they call it, but Ed Davis. Yeah, but this is around 2006, 2007. Yes. Yep. Around that time. So Ed got the job. I went back, uh, but I continued on my quest. That didn't deter me. I wasn't going to be said, he told no too many more times. And so I was a finalist in Tucson, Arizona. And then this little small but big city in Maine jumped out. And it was uh, Portland, Maine. It's a nice town. Yep. Beautiful town. Didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. And didn't quite sure if I knew I wanted to go there. But as uh, you know, I, my prayers were definitely answered because I waited to apply for Portland the very last day I could apply. It was probably 85 or so candidates. I applied. I'd never been to Portland in my life. First time I went to Portland was for my interview for chief. And it was a very different city, unlike any city I've ever lived mm -hmm. and worked. Uh, but as things happened, uh, I became a finalist and then ultimately selected as chief. I was the first African-American chief, not only in the history of the city of Portland, but also in the history of the state of Maine. And so I served Maine, served for two years. Uh, and then my ultimate goal, though, was to become a major city chief. And then a Cincinnati opportunity presented itself. Cincinnati, Ohio. Hmm. And so what's interesting about Cincinnati, just before the Cincinnati opportunity came up, I flew out to L.A. And because I, I guess I got homesick of, um, you know, the good weather. You know, Portland gets a lot of snow, as you know, Dean. And it gets very cold. And so I applied for a job in two places a little city surrounded by Long Beach, California, called Signal Hill. Mm -hmm. And then the L.A. Unified School District Police Department, which was the largest police school district uh, in the country, even more so than, than New York. So I was a finalist in both the, the small city and school. And so I went through the process. I had a good idea that I was going to be selected. And then it hit me. If I get selected for this job, I will never become a major city chief. I knew it. Why, why is that? Why, why did you feel that way? Well, I felt that way strongly because when you talk about major cities and having watched the selection process of a lot of major cities, a lot of times big cities will reach out and touch you. They know your background and they'll 
they'll come to you and say, are you interested? And so that happened when I got the Detroit job. I was a Cincinnati police chief at the time. And I got a call from Michigan. Are you interested in uh, becoming Detroit's next chief? And I said, let's talk. That's generally how it happens. I mean, you go through a process, of course, but they do a lot of outreach and, you know, because they know what they're looking for. Sure, sure. And so um, when I went into the interview for the small city called Signal Hill, and it's notable because that was a collegiate-level football player that was beaten to death by that police department. So they had some issues. Uh, and when I went in the interview, the one interviewer said to me, you don't really want this job. And in fact, you're too big for this job. And I had to openly admit, you're right. And I, that was the end of my interview, of course. And then as it relates to the school police department, the LA Unified School District Police Department, I just went up and just said, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back home. Because I just knew. No, thanks. Yeah, and so when I went back, and this is how I would give all glory to God, because it was placed on my heart to contact the city of Cincinnati, because I had applied, but I hadn't heard anything. And they said, well, Chief Craig, we don't have your application. I said, well, I submitted it a month or so ago where the deadline is in a couple of days. You think you can resend it? I did. And once again, as fate, grateful that uh, I was then selected as Cincinnati's police chief. And then after two years, I got the call from Detroit and I came home. I went full circle. And as I've said to the folks I had the, the good fortune of working with over the years, my last eight years in Detroit was probably my best. I was home. Uh, the Detroit Police Department was in a crisis when I came in. The city was in a crisis. So to watch this, the, the department turn around uh, was just a phenomenal feat. Uh, and then after eight years, I left with my head high, uh, thought I would pursue politics. Uh, running for governor for the state of Michigan. Uh, but that said, that's kind of a, I know I went a little longer than I wanted to, Dean, but I just kind of wanted to give your viewers a bit more insight into it. I mean, there's a lot of insights. I, you know, worked through Rodney King. At the time, I was the president of the Oscar Joe Bryant Foundation as a sergeant, which was a black police association. So when Rodney King happened and you know, media assets, you know, uh, came to Los Angeles because everybody wanted to know what happened. Yeah, if you could talk a little bit about your experience with Rodney King, you know, that we could definitely dive into that a little bit. And as you know, Rodney King was probably uh, the first uh, videotaped uh, excessive force incident involving a police department. So, of course, Rodney King is notable for a lot of reasons. Uh, subsequently, the when the officers involved in the beating were acquitted, uh, the city of Los Angeles, uh, there was civil unrest. Uh, then the federal government came in and the LAPD went under federal oversight. Again, I was the president of the Oscar Joe Bryant Foundation at the time. 
And so it was a very interesting time for me professionally uh, as well as for the department. So Chief, while you're there, just a couple, uh, couple folks, I'm going to hit the chat. Again, folks, this is Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. I'm here with Chief James Craig, who is retired. Uh, we are live on LinkedIn, on YouTube, and on Facebook. If oh, can know. I say something, Dean? Mm -hmm. For me, uh, I have no difficult conversations. Uh, people that know <laughs> That's me. the name of the show. <laughs> I know it's the name of the show. It might be difficult for some, mm -hmm. but... Uh, I actually thrive best when I'm having conversations about the elephant in the room. You and I might be related then because it's, it's <laughs> where I feel, I feel very comfortable doing that as well. Um, right. So chief speaking of elephant in the room, again, let's go a little deeper in, into, into the Rodney King incident. So again, that's something that, um, that I actually just spoke about when I was, uh, I was guest lecturing at, a, at Williams James college not too long ago. And I brought that up. Uh, I was a teenager when that happened. So, um, that, that is burned into my brain because I was of the age where I was no longer a, uh, a cute and adorable boy. I was now a, um, now a young man. And, and um, I felt like that was, that directly spoke to me. And I know that there was a point in my life where I felt that it wasn't, um, if it was going to happen, it was kind of like a, a, a matter of time as to when that was going to happen to me because it was so prevalent in the media that um, it made it, it just it was everywhere, and it just kind of took over the television for a little bit. So it, it struck a lot of fear in my heart and a lot of the uh, the other young young black men that I grew up with in the suburb that we uh, that we lived in. So if you could talk a little bit more about that, that would be awesome. Yeah, you know, certainly there were many investigations at the federal level, the local level. Again, I talked about the uh, federal consent decree. Clearly, uh, the LAPD had historically had problems in communities of color, black, mm -hmm. Hispanic. There were allegations that the department was heavy handed uh, in some areas. Uh, when they took a forensic surgical look at the area where the officers were assigned to, uh, they found that there was some uh, systemic racist behavior that took place and not necessarily unique to North Hollywood where the criminal act took place, other parts of the department. Now I had the good fortune that, you know, I came up in the LAPD and I would tell you the vast majority of officers were hardworking, ethical uh, officers, but I'd be naive to tell you that there weren't individuals uh, that engage in nefarious behavior even as I began to move up in ranks and I came into a station in the Watts area of Los Angeles and they put me in, the, in, in that area because I had kind of developed a re reputation of being unapologetic, unafraid to take on challenges, particularly when it came in changing culture. That's a reputation that pretty much followed me throughout my career, uh, but I was always fair. And I always recognize that you just can't paint an entire police agency with a broad brush and say, this is a racist police department or any officers that are white are racist. That's garbage. Uh, you know, and, and I'm hearing recent talk now, I was reading an article today where it was saying how at, in post George Floyd, 
a lot of these departments hired African-American chiefs and it's done little or nothing to change the culture of policing in America. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I have to push back on that because one, you know, anytime there's a bad incident, it does stain the profession. But any suggestion that is reflective of an entire profession is wrong. Look, I came up in a time, and that's why I illustrate, you know, I started in the 70s. And things were very different then, of course. And I talked about the interaction I had on my first day out of the academy of being assigned to a patrol unit. But that doesn't mean that the entire profession is systemically racist. When I've seen white officers, ethical, hardworking, who ran toward danger and put their lives on the line to save, yes, members of communities of color. I've seen it all through my career. So I push back vigorously. Now, that doesn't mean that some departments have more issues than others. And, you know, I've had a chance and we talked as we were preparing for this um, about my thoughts on what happened in Memphis. Now, as we know, Memphis, there were five officers, all black, mm -hmm. who committed a crime and killed this young man. They use excessive force. And, and what else is problematic about that incident is the fact that there were officers that were arrived to the scene and just stood there and watched it happen and did nothing. There was a lot that was problematic about that incident. That well, was a lot. And, and, you know, I'll be candid. Having been a chief in three cities, as a chief, you don't stand up a high-profile unit staffed by younger young ten, uh, uh, officers who have a tenure of anywhere between two and three years and not factor in appropriate management, managerial and supervisory oversight. Absolutely. You just don't do that. The chief sets the tone for the department, bottom line. Now, if the department had a culture uh, as she transitioned in, it's up to you as the chief officer to take appropriate steps. I'm not saying launching a crime fighting unit is inappropriate. I did it here in Detroit. Detroit had problems, but I also instinctively knew you have to have appropriate supervision. I say appropriate, not just supervision, but appropriate supervision that's gonna have the courage and the integrity to do what's right. And these officers didn't get it. And I, if, and once it's all said and done, after, after they take a forensic look at Memphis, I, I think you're going to find in here that not just that unit, the Scorpion unit, but you're going to hear that the department uh, has a culture. Uh, now, Chief, if I could just, just jump in a little bit on that. Um, I agree. I agree with you that it was absolutely a supervisory issue there on many different levels. Um, not to, it, it was clear to me that they were so comfortable using that level of intensity that that was not the first time that that had happened. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. It, well, it wasn't the first time. In fact, I think one of the officers, if my memory serves me correct, had had a history mm -hmm. of engaging in excessive force. But when you think about it. 
when officers stand by and do nothing, I remember as a, as a LAPD officer, I was working with one of my classmates and that's when crack cocaine was, was big. We stopped a, a group of young men. Uh, and as we stopped and got them out of their vehicle, it was a, uh, a large size truck, um, possible gang members. My partner wanted to hit one of them with his Cal Light flashlight. And I immediately ran to him and grabbed him so he wouldn't do it. Now, of course, that wasn't always viewed as the right and popular thing to do. But these young men did not offer any resistance. Um, I didn't feel threatened, and nor, my, nor should my partner. And so when I did that, of course, he said, I'm gonna, we're going back to the station. I, I refuse to work with you. And um, you're a coward. And so uh, I said, oh, really? I'm the coward. <laughs> you every bit of five foot one wet, and I'm the coward because I stopped you for beating a person that didn't offer any ounce of resistance. And so uh, I was already handcuffed too, chief. Was he already in custody? No, they were detained. We hadn't put cuffs on him, but again, no resistance. It was cooperation. And so I'll never forget going to a, an African-American sergeant who was relatively new, telling him what I thought about the situation and all he could say to me, and I'll never forget it, look, you're going to have to learn to get along to work here. And I was so disappointed in his response. All that did for me is it, it really energized me to want to promote and later become a chief. I'll say that courageous supervision is not always common. Now, this is not a blatant attack on supervision because there's some great supervisors out there that get this, uh, managers, but there are exceptions. Uh, Chief, I'll say this really quick. Um, we got a couple questions in the chat. There's some folks that want to ask some questions of you. Sure. Um, Wayne says, now we have a duty to intervene thanks to cell phone videos. So that's from Wade. Wade also asked earlier, how much research did the chief do uh, researching a uh, police department prior to an interview? As a new chief in a new agency, how did you address senior leadership who felt they deserved to have got the job? You know, that, and, um, that's a great question. I pride myself in, in every department that I applied for. I uh, did tremendous research into the department, the city, the politics of the city, uh, those are things. I wanted to know if the department was effective or ineffective and what things needed to be done. Um, but it just didn't stop there. I mean, because once you get appointed, you just don't do it. And then, okay, I got the job. I'm good now. Uh, the process continues. I've always had the ability to get out talk to rank and file officers because I want to understand leadership of the department. 
Is it effective or is it ineffective? I had sessions with community members, local activists. How do you view the police department? And you know what's interesting, uh, as I did the research, there was crossover. So if you take a department that has low morale and the police officers that are working, they have no confidence in their leadership. And I hate to use the word leadership in their managers and supervision. That says a lot because the community says the same thing. Same thing. And so it really gives you a basis and a template on what you need to do. And I mean, if we had three, four hours, I would really go through some things that I've done, especially when I came back to Detroit. So chief, can I just, can I just, I want to just redirect you to one specific piece of that question that I think is super important. How did you deal with the people, let's say captains, lieutenants, whoever that were up for that job that now feel passed over by an outsider? Well, how, that, how did that piece work? Well, and that's that is great. And I, I, I thank you for bringing me back to that because one of the things that you have to do, because I was coming from the outside, mm-hmm. every department I came from the outside. The most important thing is credibility. Is this chief credible? Does he have the moxie? Does he have the skill set to lead us? See, police officers, as you know, when there's a selection process, oh, they do their research on the candidates. And once the candidate is selected, they even dig deeper on that candidate. Well, what was he like as chief in Cincinnati? What was he like as chief in Portland? They do their own background check. And they're very thorough. So when you come into an agency with a lot of credibility, someone who is viewed as being fair, does that mean you're going to make everybody happy? Absolutely not. But if the vast majority say, you know what? He calls it like he sees it. If you cross the line, you can be assured that he's going to take action. Now, if it's a mistake, he's going to work with you with the mistake. But if it's something that you do for some kind of financial gain or you're just corrupt, you're criminal, stand by. And most police officers support that. And so what you bring to the table coming in the door, your past will always precede you. Now, I see that point, Chief. Really quick, did you pull people in? Because even even with that, with that being said, that, as you know, what better than I do even, even that won't be enough. Some people just make up their mind. They're, they, they're going to undermine you and things like that. Has that happened to you? And if so, how did you deal directly with that piece? Well, first of all, it's human nature, especially if you weren't selected. You know, the one good fortune I had coming into Detroit, everybody above the rank of lieutenants appointed by the chief of police. Mm-hmm. That said, I can appoint or disappoint. And so coming in Detroit, there was a a leadership void. Uh, the, the city or the department was under a consent judgment for 13 years. 
the, one of the longest running in the in the in the country by I think Oakland had us beat Oakland California, and so I knew it was a leadership problem. And then when I spoke to the police officers as I was transitioning in, one of the officers told me two things: Chief, fire the bosses, and we want to be police officers again. I took it to heart, so I did my homework on the individual bosses. And frankly, I ended up giving three choices to the ones I wanted to move along. I will fire you or you can retire. Or if you choose to stay, I will take you back to your last civil service rank, which was the rank of Lieutenant. So I was able to build my own management team, not from outsiders, because I had a lot of confidence that talent was inside of the Detroit Police Department. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to build a new team. So here's what I know about police officers. If you value, and I'm not just talking about police officers, I'm talking about police officers, sergeants, lieutenants. If you value their work and you trust what they do, and you make changes, not because I'm the chief, I can do this because I can do it. No. What are your thoughts? And if it's something I can't do, uh, having the courage to say, I, I can't do that. And here's why. But take the time and moment to explain. That's called servant leadership. See, it's one thing to be a chief and you lead the community. But you got to also serve and lead the men and women you work with. You notice I didn't say it worked for you, that you work with. Words matter. Yes, they do. And I had a uh, saying, and I took part of it from Bratton. He used to always say cops count. But see, what I put, I said cops count, but leadership matters. Cops count, leadership matters. And it's amazing when you approach your role in that way, man, so many magical things happen. Well, Chief, the, the chat's lighting up here. You know, uh, Yakobo says that's deep. He's spot on. And Wade, who asked the original question, he says, I appreciate your response. Thank you. Uh, there's a few Thank more you. questions here if you're up for it. Yes. I have sure. another one. Uh, so Mike says, Chief, what is the disconnect between law enforcement and some communities that they serve? Is it culture, training, or many things? It's a combination of many things. It can be culture. It can be. It can be training. I touched on it briefly when I talked about Memphis. When I say that the chief of police sets the tone for the agency, I believe it. I know it. If there is a fractured relationship between a community and a police department is because the chief didn't do his due diligence. He's not holding members of the department accountable with the expectations of building relationships. I can look at any department right now and tell you. I, I'm going to give you an example. Please do. So some may or may not agree with me, and this kind of goes off to the side from the community, but it is the community. 
So one of the things that Detroit was recognized for during 2020, you saw the number of major cities that were on fire. There were riots. There were people being, uh, police officers being forced out of their police station, police officers being attacked. Not just one or two cities, many cities. And the most egregious is when police officers were forced, and I'm talking about Seattle, being forced out of their police station. And the criminals being allowed to set up a, an autonomous zone. Shameful. Shameful. When you think about any city in America, particularly in, in communities that are vulnerable, guess what I know? Folks in those communities want effective and constitutional policing. So the radicals that come in and want to create the vision, they don't speak for the community. As a police chief, you have a duty and an obligation to protect folks in vulnerable communities. You have a duty and an obligation to support the men and women out there trying to protect the community. Bottom line. And when a chief decides to let a politician, i.e. the mayor, we're just going to let them play a little bit. Not acceptable. That's the day you fire me as the chief. And let me just say, and this is where community plays a role. When I first was appointed as chief in Detroit in 2013, community had no confidence in the Detroit Police Department. Community activists did not like and respect the Detroit Police Department. So I went about the business of building that bridge. I got with the community activists. And like anything else, you know, it takes time to heal. It takes time to build trust. And all you have is your word. And we all know that once you tell one lie, and you don't stand behind one thing, you're done. It's over. Set the tone. Build the relationships. Fast forward to 2020. There's a reason why Detroit didn't burn. Did not burn. When people thought, if any city's going to go up in flames, it's going to be Detroit, Michigan. Surprise, surprise. You know those relationships I had with those activists? They trusted the chief. They trusted the department. They stood by and with me. We know that one of the MOs in all these cities was these outside agitators, call them Antifa, whoever you want to call them. They came in and were allowed to do what they did. And unfortunately, some of these departments, some didn't have good relationships with their activist community or with their community because those activists came out and stood with us because they wasn't going to allow these outsiders from as far away as California to come in and incite riotous behavior. What's that going to happen? I agree. It's critical to have those upfront relationships before something bad happens because that's when you can go ahead and you can uh, make a withdrawal from that from that relationship that you built uh, right. ahead of time. All right, Chief, a few more questions. So, Jermaine, this is a long one, my friend, so I'm going to try to just sift through this. 
Regarding the increase in violent crime and options that several mid to large scale communities have used to enhance community relations, are you familiar with the community violence interrupters? What are your experiences and opinions with them, good or bad? And what strategies would you uh, recommend? I'm going to stop there, Jermaine. That's 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 a lot there. So, um, if you yeah, could, I, I have worked with uh, violence interrupters, and candidly, um, every city I've worked with, the exception of Maine, Portland, Maine, we didn't have them. Uh, I've had great success in some, and not so much success in others. Uh, you know, one size doesn't fit all. But I think once again, we're talking about people who are community activists, some of them, who really have the desire to see better in, in violent neighborhoods. I've seen it work very well, but again, it's about relationships and it's about that chief because the chief sets the tone for the department and part of the tone setting. And you know, many violence interrupters are former gang members uh, who've turned their lives around, or former individuals who were involved in crime who want to give back. And, you know, some of the hardliners, I mean, some of the, uh, the police officers that, let's say, are stuck on status quo, they don't want anything to do with it. And this is why it's important for the chief to set the right tone. Uh, and so, yes, it can work, and it does work, but it's not it's not just that. That's just one one strategy. All right. So I have one more for you from, I believe it's Abubakar. Abubakar says, how do you bridge the gap between the department and the community if police officers do not make any effort in engaging with the community? It's called one word, accountability. So one of the things that I did to bridge that gap in the community when I came to Detroit. I did it actually in every department I've led from Portland to Cincinnati to Detroit. I launched what was called neighborhood police officers. And basically I gave that assigned officer a piece of geographic area in the city, small enough that they could manage. And I would refer to them as the many police chiefs. And in doing so, uh, their sole purpose was to handle like quality of life issues and build relationships. I don't care what it is. If it's whatever that community, a uh, community is complaining about, whether it's, it's you know, uh, young people doing 360s in the middle of the street, solve it, fix it and be responsive. And you know, I knew it was working because when I would go to community meetings, community members wouldn't complain. They would praise the neighborhood police officers. My phone in my office wasn't ringing with a bunch of complaints. Why? Because these many police chiefs were doing their job. I even uh, gave uh, neighborhood police officers who live within the boundary of Detroit, I said, look, Take your police car home. Mark police car. And initially, some of the old heads thought I was a little nutty for that. The car's going to get damaged. So you don't get it. These are neighborhood police officers. I want the community to see that police car. 
police officers who live in the city are truly part of the community. And so it was a big hit with the ones that lived in the city. Of course, the ones outside the city, I didn't see the benefit. If you live an hour away from home, what benefit is having a Detroit police car out in the city of Troy, Michigan? There isn't any. And actually, I admit that I was in D.C., and D.C. had uh, set up a similar program, and I liked it. It made sense to me. Uh, what better than having an officer who lives in the neighborhood they patrol? And do you know not one police car got damaged? Not one, not one police car. And the community loved it. That's just an example. But yeah, that I that, see. I haven't heard of that. That's um. That's certainly an interesting way of looking at it. You know, it depends on where you are. I've I've heard philosophies um, like you don't police in the in the neighborhood you live in. For example, because it could create hostility between your neighbors in uh, uh, well, and you, when, when you are well, when not working. When I um, graduated from Detroit Police Department, they assigned me to the tenth precinct, and that was the same precinct I grew up in. Mm -hmm. So I knew some of the folks that lived in that area. I had since moved from that area, but I saw people I went to grade school, middle school with, and. Um, it wasn't a problem at all. I was connected with that community. Now, to some of your your listeners and viewers, uh, I do not advocate forcing police officers to live in the city. Uh, and you know, I know when I was first hired into Detroit, they had something called residency, meaning that if you were a police officer, you had to live within the boundaries of Detroit. Well, as things have changed. I moved on to L.A., L.A. police officers couldn't afford to live in some of the nicer areas based on salary. So it just was wrong to try to force someone to live in a city and the areas they wanted to live, the schools they wanted to send their children, they just couldn't. The community didn't necessarily like it. I know when I was police chief here in Detroit, they wanted me to reinstate it. And I said, we'll lose half our police department. You sure will. It's just, it just won't, it just, in this day and age, it will not work. But for those who stay, uh, certainly in their neighborhood police officers, I guess one of the bennies was give them a nice new police car to take home. Their, their office, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I see it both ways. I, I've worked in the community that I grew up in and, uh, and there were things about it that were fantastic. Uh, you know, obviously the short commute to work was great. Um, but also being able to interact with people, um, old teachers, coaches, friends, children right. of people I grew up with. Um, there was something magical about that. There's no doubt about it. Um, but, then, but then there was also things that sometimes presented challenges. Like, for example, if I wanted to go out and have a bite to eat uh, with my family, um, sometimes you couldn't do that without somebody coming up to you and interrupting your family time to ask you what happened on their street last night when you're in the middle of, of eating your turkey club with your kids. Well, that's part, of, um, that's part of being a public servant. I mean, even to this day, I, mm -hmm. I go out now and I have people coming up to me three, four, five times a day. All mm -hmm. good things. I don't, I don't complain. Um, and so uh, that's public service. Yeah, and I'm with you on that. That's public service. Yeah. However, before I am a public servant, I am a, I'm a father. 
You know what I mean? I so, so sometimes, you know, when, when you when you just want to be dad, you know what I mean, to your kids, because they deserve your attention sometimes too. Hey, they can present I, challenges with that as well. So just I, I see I'm, both sides of the coin. Yeah, I'm a dad too, mm -hmm. and 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 there are times I like my special space. I can make a decision not to go out to a public restaurant mm -hmm. or stay home. And again, like I said, I stress to you, even today, and I had left, it's been a little over a year, and part of it probably has to do with the fact that I also ran for office. So people are constantly stopping me, talking to me, asking me questions, wanting to take pictures, and I'm okay with that. That's just me. I'm okay. So I'm glad you brought that up because believe it or not, we're down to about under 12 minutes left. Tell us about how you transitioned from being the chief of police into politics. You know, what, you know, you know, what made you want to do that and, and how's that gone for you? You know, um, it was an interesting transition, but you know, as a chief of police, um, whatever city you work in, you're working very closely with local government. You just are. Um, that's why I brought up earlier in the conversation that some of these chiefs are so concerned about keeping their job, they dare not go against their political bosses. I, on the other hand, I'm wired a little different. You're not going to force me to do something that is immoral, or certainly if I have a duty to do certain certain things, I just, I'm unapologetic for that. And so I ironically served while as chief as the deputy mayor for the city of Detroit. And so I was approached about running for governor and uh, I had a good following and so I was dissatisfied with what I was seeing coming out of our federal government, our state government. And I'm not one, to, I'm not a complainer. If you don't like something, then do something about it. In my case, my doing something about it was the decision that uh, I would run for office. I got sick and tired of what I saw doing 2020, sick and tired of defunding police sick and tired. I, I can go on and on. I'm sick and tired of open borders. And for people to tell you there are no open borders, we have open borders and we have fentanyl. We sure do. And, you know, so I could sit here and complain and whine about what's wrong. The fact that, you know, gasoline was at one point low and it's, it's outrageous. It's come down some. You know, we're in a, a recession. I don't care what they say on television. I don't care they tell you they, they think we're naive and we're stupid. I know the impact that these folks that start screaming defund, dismantle uh, the police has had on communities. It's hard to recruit. It's hard to retain. And it's had an impact on why crime and oh, let's not forget when crime goes up, the first thing people want to uh, uh, point the finger at is cool police. But nobody wants to talk about 
the radical prosecutors and the judges who let these violent predatory criminals out without bail because the system is broken. No, what you've done is you've made victims out of violent criminals. And I would imagine it might be some of your viewers or listeners that don't want to hear that, but it's a fact. And I often go back and default back to, if you live in a vulnerable community, I've talked to those folks. I've talked to Ms. Smith. She told me what it's like to hear gunshots at night. She told me what it's like living next door to a dope dealing individual. So guess what? I work for them. I, and, I and, and yes, it. and I will call out judges, and I have. You can Google it. <laughs> I've done it. We have already done that. <laughs> and so I'm unapologetic about that. Uh, because I, I, I know who I work for. I love it. Thank you so much. I, I there's another something that I saw in, in a YouTube clip I want to bring up, but there's there's a lot of people that wanna that wanna interact with you here. So Neil says, uh, how can police officers slash departments reconnect with schools? I'm seeing a trend that school administrators usually who are not minorities dictating how minorities are triggered by police. So let's see if we can, can if we can do this in about two minutes or less, because there's a couple other ones I want to get to. Okay. Uh these school administrators are failing, particularly in communities of color. Parents have a choice, but the, the way things are today, you would think the school administrators and the school unions decide on what students should be taught and whether or not police armed police officers should be in the school. Shameful, I'll leave it there. All right. Fair enough. So we got a long one from uh from my good friend Ed who um who told me ahead of time he was excited about seeing you on. He says, "Love your comments about leadership and accountability, but I do believe making policy policing the hot button political issue uh it is is being wrongly directed. I've seen you and hearing you on this broadcast, I believe you are right down the middle. How did you feel about the president's comments about brown and black dads?" having to have the talk with their sons. So I'm going to stop there. So how did you feel about hey, that? Well, let me just say this. Um, what we have today, my opinion, we have a, a feckless administration. I've called the president out on some of his comments about, like he made this reckless comment about I think it was attributable to what happened in Atlanta. And he suggested that why does an officer have to use, have to shoot someone to kill them? Why don't they just shoot them in the leg? Yep. Oh, so let me see if I get this right, Mr. President. Obviously, you've been a police officer and you understand this. So you are faced with an imminent threat and you're taking gunfire and you have to do one thing, survive. And doing that survival mode that you are in, you have got to stop the threat. Oh, let me see if I can shoot his arm or his leg. That's something off television. Which is moving, by the way, too. It's not like the arm and leg just still. It's moving. Right. So, I mean, it's just... I, I shouldn't even use that as an example, but they've politicized policing, 
And frankly, they have to live with this defund movement. Now, they backed off of it because it's hurt them significantly. But guess what? Recruitment is at an all-time low. NYPD, by way of example, I think they're down, it might even be more than 3,000 officers. They said they have, this has been the lowest staffing numbers in, I don't know, 20 years. There's a reason for that. And so if your actions don't match your words, you can say, well, no, we, we support the police. But the first thing you want to say is training, training, training. I'm not saying that training is not good. I'm a strong advocate of more training and more training. But where's the honest support for the men and women who serve? And I'm not saying all cities now. I don't want to broad brush it. That's one of my other complaints. They tend to paint the entire prof profession with a broad brush and they're wrong. I, yeah, I I. I... I mean, to your point, there's been three or four different things we've talked about tonight that could have each been their own individual show. Uh, this is what this is one of those topics. Um, as far you know, as far as the talk goes, um, I don't. And when I, I do my podcast, I make sure to keep that in mind. Yeah, 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 definitely, because this this could this could go on and on and on. One thing I did want to ask you about really quick as we come up on time here, I thought that was um, I really love that you said was. You said we don't have a gun problem, we have a criminal problem. Bingo. Can you talk a little bit more about that and just let people know, um, give them some context to that to that quote? When a drunk driver gets involved in a fatal traffic accident, is it the car or is it the driver? It's not the car. When a gun is used during a commission of a crime. Is it this inanimate object called firearm, the problem, or is it the individual? Whether the individual is suffering from some form of mental illness, whether the person is a criminal, like sadly, uh, this most recent shooting incident here in Michigan that I'm sure everyone's aware of, the mass shooting, the guy should have been in jail. He was put on probation and was charged and found guilty of a felony firearm. He wasn't in jail. And what I find so interesting, very little comes out and says, well, you know, uh, chief, uh, no. Where's the accountability for the judges? Where's that accountability? And then, then we politically want to politicize it and say, oh my God, we need stronger gun control. No, we need stronger criminal control. I don't need to tell you what's going on in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. It's these prosecutors. When are they going to take responsibility for their bad decisions? Do you think you put somebody out on probation when they should be incarcerated? Look, I'm all about doing what's right. But let's have an honest conversation. Why are they getting a pass? Well, one thing we know for certain, of course, when you talk about prosecutors who are elected, judges who are elected, is another elected, i.e. a mayor, generally going to take on those folks? Probably not. 
Probably not. Shameful. It is absolutely shameful to me. So that's a great way to end this. And if I had to guess, some of your viewers and listeners are in agreement. And some of them say, we need gun control. Yeah, we should have common sense gun laws. Common sense. Remember, the gun is the object. It's the person. So, Chief, what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop you there, and and maybe it, it, at some point, it, it, if you have more time, we we, we got to have you back because this is remarkably unfinished. Um, okay. Hey, thank you so much. I got a couple comments here for you. So, well, this uh, I thank all your your listeners and your viewers for indulging me for the last hour. Yeah, Abubakar uh, says this is great. He wants to run this back again. Um, okay. Sarah, Sarah Elizabeth, she's a professor over at William James College. She says, excellent show. Thanks, uh, thanks, Chief, for a great interview. Thank you. Ed says, thank you so much for having the Chief on. Hope he's back soon. This MSN is the real deal. And finally, um, that w Abubakar, we'll talk about that some other time, my friend. We'll have, there's just not enough time. Chief, really <laughs> quick, how do, we, how, do we, how do people follow you uh, in about 30 seconds? Can you tell us how they can follow you? And, and, well, and, I'm on, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, so you can, you can get me on LinkedIn. I have a Facebook profile, and as soon as I solidify my next steps uh, regarding a podcast, I certainly want to get that out. So you can certainly follow me on uh, LinkedIn. And I think, uh, Dean, you have that information that you could. Yep, I do. It's, just, it just, it's James Craig on LinkedIn, folks. That's how him and I connected. Um I, I certainly recommend you, uh, you give, give the man a follow. And as far as getting you, good luck on getting your podcast up and running. If there's anything I can do, uh, anything you want to bounce off me, I've been doing this for a little while now. Um, I'm more than happy to to be of service in any way possible. Well, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm very excited about that. I got some other things I'm working on as, as well. It's no secret I've had an opportunity to do a lot of national news. So I know some of your viewers uh, are familiar with me from um, being on different Fox News, Fox mm -hmm. Business, WGN Now, News Nation, Newsmax. I've had a, a great opportunity to go on those platforms and talk about issues uh, as they've come up. And so I want to certainly continue to do that. Uh, that's important. And um, But again, thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I think a lot of our, our, our friends on LinkedIn tuned in today. And thank you for that. Well, it, it, it's always great to have people on, and then there's always the rewatches and the reshares. So, folks, that's going to do us. To, that's going to do it for tonight. Thanks again for taking uh, the last hour away from your family, away from your normal activities, to take part in this very important and very relevant conversation with Chief James Craig. So, folks, we'll see you next week with another big show. There's going to be an announcement on Wednesday, so stay tuned for that. I'm coming back. Now, I'm just <laughs> you'll like the next one we have too. Folks, have a great night, and as always, hashtag supply the why. Take care. All right, Dean. Take care, my friend. All right. Take care, Chief.